Welcome to Victorian Samplings. I'm your host, Vanessa Warren, and in this episode, we continue our exploration of 19th century material culture by turning our attention to different forms of creative expression. We'll consider drawn and painted images, crafted three-dimensional objects, and, in a first for our podcast, a poem inspired by a work of visual art. We begin with Daniel Skihan's insights on the ledger book art of Sitting Bull, we turn next to Shijia Yu to explore the history of paper peep shows. And we close our episode in conversation with collaborators Kaylee Enos and Kylie Ann Hingston, who share their knowledge of Frances Brown and her poetry. We are delighted to add these guests' voices to the soundscape of Victorian samplings. Please stay tuned. Hello, I'm Natalie Levetri, and I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Danielle Skihan to the podcast. Danielle is an associate professor at Oberlin College and the author of The Fabric of Empire, Material and Literary Cultures of the Global Atlantic, 1650 to 1850. She is currently working on a new book tentatively titled Imperial Inc., Colonial Writing and the Material Cultures of Dispossession. Today, we'll be exploring connections between creativity, material culture, and colonization. Hello, Danielle, and thank you for being here with me. Hi, thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. Danielle, you've been working on ledger book art. Can you tell our listeners what is ledger book art? Ledger art refers to an Indigenous narrative art practice that thrived during the Age of Removal, That refers to roughly the 60 years following the Civil War and the establishment of reservations in the American West. The name references the material most readily available to Indigenous artists who were held captive on military forts, namely ledger book paper. Artists recreated on this paper available to them more traditional forms of hide painting. So with the white settler decimation of buffalo herds, they turned to paper and the paper available to engage in those more traditional pictorial art forms. So most depict battle scenes and hunting scenes. But as we move towards the end of the century, you see some showing the changing Western landscape and including soldiers, forts, trains, and even cameras. The paper usually came from military officers and traders, and the works were created with crayons, ink, pencil, and watercolor rather than more traditional media like mineral pigments and bone drawing tools. But like hide paintings on teepees, ledger book drawings were also easily carried in various removals, so they're a highly portable form. Are you able to describe one of these works for us? Sure, absolutely. I've been looking at and working with Sitting Bull's existing ledger art, and that's housed at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming. So Sitting Bull was drawing ledger art while he and 172 of his people were incarcerated at Fort Randall in South Dakota from 1881 to 1883. And I'm sure everyone has heard of Sitting Bull. He predicted and participated in the defeat of Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn, performed in the Buffalo Bill Wild West show, and was one of the most widely photographed First Nations leaders. He was killed by soldiers at Standing Rock in 1890 for supposedly resisting arrest. He produced his graphic narratives on stationery belonging to Mr. D.L. Pratt, who was the operator of the Fort Randall Trading Post. Most of the pieces used lead 
pencil and red and green crayons. For instance, one piece depicts Sitting Bull galloping left across the page on a dark horse to attack a dismounted crow warrior. His green shield bears the detailed image of an eagle. His father presented him with an eagle feather when he came of age, and the image of the eagle seems to be one that's important to him to represent in, on these ledger drawings. So for instance, in another drawing, the eagle flies above him into battle. The image shows his wounds in red, and in all of these Sitting Bull ledger drawings that, that he made while imprisoned, the post-trader, D.L. Pratt, inscribes them with descriptions of what's being depicted in these drawings. So, for instance, the one I just described, Pratt writes, same fight, meaning the same fight with the crow warrior, killing a crow who dismounted and fought desperately and wounded bull in two places. So I think that it's also interesting to think about where different inscription cultures are colliding here. So you have Sitting Bull creating a pictographic narrative of this particular battle scene, and then Pratt coming back in and inscribing what's going on in this scene in alphabetic English letters. Right. That layering is really interesting. It makes me wonder, can you tell us about the significance of using or repurposing the ledger paper? Sure. I think one of the things that I find really interesting about these ledger book drawings is how they take the material cultures that are really facilitating colonial dispossession, ledgers, stationery. Ledgers, for instance, they work in columns, right? They're going to name particular incarcerated people, the duration of their incarceration, the rations they've been given. I mean, it really becomes this mode of, you know, turning people into data. And I mean, it's biopolitics, right? It's how you control population. And stationary, so the stationary that Sitting Bull is working with, I mean, these are, you know, Pratt's going to be sending out letters to other depots saying we need food, clothes, ammunition. So to take that stationary and turn it sideways, right? To turn it counterclockwise sideways, and to draw over the letterhead that says who Pratt is, or to take a ledger book that's meant to, well, turn people into numbers that can be controlled and to turn it sideways again and use it in ways, to repurpose it in ways that it was not meant to be used. And not only that, but to repurpose it in ways that can be used as life writing, as a form of, yeah, like graphic autobiography for both personal and group histories, I think is is incredibly powerful, incredible repurposing of materials that inherently are designed to dispossess, right? So I think that that's one of the things that's really, that's really cool about this art. Right. Thank you for that explanation of this kind of notion of paper as a material of dispossession. Thinking about that, was Sitting Bull's repurposing of ledgers a form of maybe reclaiming? So the story goes that Sitting Bull would actually be sitting on Pratt's porch or inside the trading shop, and he would draw. He would get stationery from Pratt, and he would draw and then either sell the images to Pratt or trade them for food and other goods that he needed. So I think it's an interesting moment where you see someone using this art in order to, sure, as a form of life writing, but also to survive. And so I think, you know, you see a lot of this ledger art being commodified by people at these posts and at forts. And I think that Sitting Bull is participating in that surely because these are being, they're not being kept for himself, right? They're being passed on to Pratt, who's passing them on to family members back east and selling them to people who are visiting the fort. 
So you mentioned that these drawings would be traded or sold to Pratt by Sitting Bull. Were they considered valuable? Was this something that others were looking to purchase? I guess I would consider this souvenir art. I think a lot of this art is being collected by white settlers at a time when white European settlers thought that indigenous communities were disappearing and, you know, through genocide, through removal. And so I think there was a motive to collect oral histories, for instance, origin stories is when a lot of that starts happening as well. And I think that you see the white settler impulse towards curatorial work at stake here, right? So curating these pictographic images of a West that was being depicted as disappearing, right? We, we obviously know that that's not the case, right? That was a rhetorical strategy of settler colonialism to suggest that Indigenous peoples were disappearing from the West. But I think that you see the collection of these drawings alongside other curatorial work, some of which was ethnographic, collecting origin stories and oral history, Some of it was archaeological and anthropological, so really stealing Indigenous ceremonial artifacts, for instance. A lot of it was also performative. I mean, this is the era in which Buffalo Bill is taking his show to Europe. I mean, you see his show in Italy, in Romania, in Georgia. So I think that it's a part of that settler colonial curatorial impulse. So... I think sitting bulls in particular were notarized or authenticated in 1925. So by 1925, it seems that the Smithsonian, for instance, were allocating value to this kind of artwork and life writing and saying that it should be preserved. I think that an interesting question is who should be doing the preservation and in whose hands should these works be in? That is an interesting question. You mentioned the Smithsonian Is that uh, someplace that these drawings can be seen right now? Or how might people listening view these drawings? So I was able to see Sitting Bull's leisure art drawings at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. I think there's one on display in the Plains Indian Museum wing of that center. The rest are actually in the vault of the, the Whitney Museum of Western Art. So they're down below ground, kind of kept away. I think one... Other reasons for that is that they are harder to preserve because of the kinds of paper they're drawn onto. So you want to keep them out of the light and things like that. So you've touched on a few different things that you mentioned preservation, which I find really interesting that the artifacts themselves have this notion of being lost or a disappearing. And I'm wondering how the materials that Sitting Bull is using and the context of his making, the context of incarceration connect to Indigenous histories. Could you touch on that a little bit? You asked first about preservation. So you see a shift in what paper is made of in this time period, a shift away from rag paper to tree pulp paper, which just doesn't tend to stand up to time in the same way. It tends to disintegrate faster and ledger book paper in general was going to always be a cheaper form of paper. So the material that these are being drawn on have a tendency to disintegrate faster than something that was drawn on canvas or rag paper or hides, for instance. In terms of the paper and it relating to Indigenous history, it's important to remember that alphabetic writing and and paper and ink are integral to settler colonialism from the very beginning. So I'm just thinking, 
when Columbus lands in the Caribbean, sure, he plants a flag and says, I claim this for Spain. But behind him is always the notary writing it down and sending that letter back to Spain as evidence and as the kind of official record of, of that conquest. And so I think whether it's treaties or even just widening the net to include enslaved people in the Americas, bills of sale, ship's logs, these kinds of things, paper really functions as the medium through which people are dispossessed. You can think of certainly standing armies occupation, slave traders as being integral to that process. But when it comes down to it, it needs to be verified and acted upon on paper. So I think that it is interesting to repurpose those particular materials in order to tell tales or stories of uh, survivance, right, of continuing Indigenous traditions, surviving and thriving within new conditions conditions that specifically want to eradicate those cultures through paper, if you will. That's so interesting. Danielle, what interests you most about Sitting Bull's ledger drawings? I think I was drawn to the story of, or the imagery of him sitting, you know, on the porch of the the post trader's shop, drawing these drawings of like previous battles, like kind of reliving the time before he was incarcerated and then using those drawings in order to barter for food or get money. So I think that we also think of Sitting Bull as connected to the Battle of Little Bighorn, as performing in Europe in the Buffalo Bill Wild West show, as one of the most iconic and photographed Lakota leaders in our historical record. And I think a lot of these images were curated by, like through like a white settler colonial gaze. So you have Buffalo Bill, who's kind of presenting an image of ingenuity to a Western audience, a European audience. You have the photographers coming in and asking Sitting Bull to wear a full headdress in a particular costume. With the drawings, I think you actually see an Indigenous artist representing the U.S. Army aggression against Indigenous peoples in this time period from his own perspective and using traditional Indigenous storytelling or pictorial storytelling methods. So I, th I think it's maybe an invitation uh, for those of us who study this time period to not just rely on traditional forms of evidence that might include, for instance, letters that Pratt left behind or the biography of Custer, right? So, but to actually center Indigenous representations of the same story. Danielle, thank you for sharing your insights into the material histories of colonization, creative repurposing, and Indigenous culture with me. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. Victorian samplers, I'm Jessie Cron. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Shi Jia Yu. Shi Jia Yu is an associate research fellow at Birkbeck, where she researches paper peep shows and related 19th century visual media. Drawing on media archaeology and embodied knowledge, Shi Jia highlights the multi-sensory dimension and interactivity in visual culture studies and also uses organizing hands-on optical toy-making workshops as a methodology for her research. Shijia, could you kick us off and describe paper peep shows for people who may never have seen one before? I'll do my best. Um, so a paper peep show usually measures around a size of A6 size paper. 
and it consists of a front face, which usually have one, but can have more than one peepholes. Behind the front face, you have a set of cutout panels. Those cutout panels are connected by bellows. They're on either bottom and top, or left and right sides, so only two sides. And in the end, you get a backboard, which serves as kind of a background for, for the whole scene. And the idea is that when you expand the paper peep show, you see a three-dimensional view from the um, peephole. Where did people usually find paper peep shows? Did they purchase them in bookstores or did they make them by hand? It's a very interesting question because from the quite actually scattered information that I can see, um, publishers of children's book or just quite established print sellers, they would um, offer such works in their shop, but also shops that are known for selling quite frankly, random stuff, if you like. Oh. So like small toys or random decorative stuff for the house. Um, so you get a mixture of what are the kind of merchants that actually are offering these um, objects. It seems like paper peep shows were between print media and uh, toy market. Is that correct? That's probably the way I would put it, yes. Um, I suppose one thing also to bear in mind is that even for those objects that are more kind of securely in the realm of optical toys, so for example, a phenakistoscope, you actually see them advertised by publishers as well. So it would seem to me that the paper peep show, by nature of its materiality, it kind of occupies this middle ground, while at the same time for 19th century um, publishers or sellers of toys, they did occupy different roles in terms of what they sell and what they produce. Who was the typical consumer for paper peep shows from what we know? That's a good add point in terms of because the information that I have been able to gather from archives is really, again, quite scattered. And it's probably safe to say what kind of social status they have, which is quite well off. Paper peep shows um, in England, for example, they were sold for something between five and seven shillings in the earlier part of the 19th century. So that would have been quite expensive, especially when you consider that's quite a simple piece of work. In terms of who in the middle class were actually engaging with them, are they just children? I would say that children definitely were part of the consumers, but there are different pieces of evidence that suggest that adults, both men and women, they were also engaging with them. Um, so for example, you can see a manuscript written on the paper peep show that's a gift from a man to an adult woman, because her um, title is Mrs. And uh, there are also reports from Germany saying uh, some doctor uh, was showing great interest in the particular paper peep show. And that's kind of how we get the indication of what the uh, consumers would be. From what I can gather from the archives, there is quite an interest in making paper peep shows at home, um, just kind of from the materials that you can get at home. The Home paper peep shows are interesting in the sense that they don't necessarily follow the um, format of a published work. So people 
were more willing to try new formats and maybe also introduce new topics that aren't quite typical in the commercial paper shows. Um, but in comparison, I would say we definitely get a lot more published works. It might be a case of what actually managed to survive in the archives. So what we can see today doesn't necessarily speak for how the situation was in the 19th century. Is there anything you can say about gender and the production or consumption of paper peep shows? I suppose with the consumption of paper peep shows, just by nature of how this piece of optical toy actually looks like, it almost immediately gives the association that this is something for women. And, you know, in terms of delicate paperwork and that the fact that it looks quite similar in terms of how it works and the kind of vision that it offers looks similar to things like um, scrap albums or um, transparency print, for example, in the 19th century home. So in this sense, I think there is a tendency to look at the female consumers more with, with more focus in, in the research. Although, as I was saying before, I think because the consumers, they do also come from different genders or different ages, it's probably also um, useful to think more about how the other side of society, so to say, might have engaged with it. And in terms of the production of homemade paper hoop shows, though, uh, I think you do see a clear predominance of female consumers who are at the same time makers. Um, there are paper peep show motifs that are definitely more associated with women. So, for example, um, we have one paper peep show showing a, a bowl at a quite a affluent household. So that's something for the young ladies to kind of present themselves to society but also um, depictions of um, just general beautiful landscape. Again, this idea of the amateur um, artist at home. Do you think part of the appeal of paper peep shows was that they allowed people to recreate aspects of their lives in a smaller scale that was more digestible? Or was it a chance for people to practice artistry or an excuse to recycle materials? What do you think? I'm almost tempted to say that it can be all of this, what you've just mentioned. I think in terms of the miniature aspect, I, I agree. And I think definitely this idea of kind of presenting a very, sometimes very complex world in a miniature scale, it has this natural appeal to people. The Not the problem, but I think one thing I see with this line of argument is that sometimes the kind of representation in the paper peep show is almost not delicate enough, not detailed enough to be worthy of the term miniature. <laughs> in that yeah. if we think about miniature, we think of okay, very delicately made and it's all all the details are very fine, that kind of um look whereas for paper peep show sometimes it can be a publisher but also can be an amateur maker. They produce some of the most bizarre looking elements in the cutout panels. And um, so I think it's kind of interesting. There might be a different way of looking at this and thinking well, there might be another way of dealing with the miniature scale. Um, but I think there's something I want to mention there. Um, but I think also in terms of 
if you look at many paper shows dealing with um quite grand spectacles like the opening of the Thames Tunnel in London or many royal events, then definitely I I think we can see a link there between these attempt to almost present grand objects or grand events in a manageable size or in manageable format for those staying at home for them to kind of, as you said, to digest them. And in terms of the kind of practicing of artistic skills or just really making use of what you have at home, there is definitely some work that can testify to that. So for example, I've looked at one paper paper show at the uh, V&A in London. The back of the cutout panels is actually recycled from some sketches um, from the person making this. So that's quite interesting in terms of thinking that, I mean, of course, paper was quite expensive in the 19th century, in the earlier part of the 19th century as well. So they might have thought this is a useful way to um, give these sketches a new life almost. Um, And I think lastly, in terms of practicing artistic skills there are quite some homemade paper paper shows um, that very obviously copied the published um, works so it might be a case of them trying to imitate what they consider as a good piece of published work and kind of recreate that um, with their own hands my final big question which might be a little overwhelming to try to answer, is what do you think paper peep shows can teach us about 19th century material culture? So I think that's a very fair question to ask because for me, when I started doing my PhD, it's almost like I needed to justify the reason for engaging with this material precisely because there's this question of so what? So there was pretty little items, and but what can we learn from them in terms of 19th century visual culture? I think... One of the things, as you were saying, is indeed this idea of the paper paper show looks like something that kind of derives from the peep show box. In the 18th century, we have already a quite established discourse around such objects in that they were considered to be telling people about places from far away and the exotic elements etc etc but with the paper paper show it's not precisely like that Um, for the english paper paper shows for example there aren't actually many works that depict foreign landscape they're mostly english ones that people have easy access to so i think this idea of subverting some of the assumptions we have and also kind of branching out a little bit to look beyond what do we think we know about 19th century visual culture? And then to look at some of the exceptions, there might not be significant exceptions in that it might just actually be the case of paper peep show representing that, but I think there would be important aspects to look at. And something else I think is interesting, probably more to do with the specific kinds of paper peep shows. So for example, with the um, Thames Tunnel paper peep shows, um, so the Thames Tunnel in London in the 19th century, the assumption was that those objects were just souvenirs for the tunnel. Um, but for example, during my research, I came to the conclusion that they might not necessarily serve this function because when they were produced, the Thames Tunnel was actually not finished, but the paper shows 
show the completed work in terms of that they might well have a serve a different purpose. So I think it's very much a case of um, getting to know what might be out there in terms of 19th century culture that we have maybe paid less attention to, have ignored to a certain extent, and very much in the spirit of media archaeology, I suppose, to think about what can we learn from those more obsolete or more insignificant or even dead media and then learn from the past. Thank you so much for this fascinating talk, Shadia. Kaylee Enos. I teach English literature and composition at the College of the Rockies in Cranbrook, British Columbia. Hi, I'm Kylie Ann Hingston, and I teach English literature at St. Thomas More College at the University of Saskatchewan. So welcome to you both. We've talked about a number of paintings on this podcast, but we haven't talked about poems that paintings inspire. And I think today we're going to be talking about both a painting and a poem. Kylie-Ann, can I ask you to describe Frederick William Burton's 1840 watercolor, A Blind Girl at a Holy Well, a scene in the west of Ireland? Yes, this is a a watercolor painting with three female figures in the center. And to the left is the Holy Well of the title with a Celtic cross above it and uh, water flowing out into what looks almost like a little stream or creek. The background is the mountains of Western Ireland and our foreground is those three female figures. One, a little girl standing in the well holding a bowl up holding the hands of the second female figure, a young woman who is the blind girl of the title. She's holding the hand to dip it into the water. The girl has a shawl over her head, and then behind them both is an adult woman, presumably their mother as some have interpreted it, wearing a black cape over her head as well as a white shawl tucked around her head too, holding a rosary in her praying hands, and she's looking back at the blind girl. Thanks so much, Kylie Ann. You've been working together to identify poems that were inspired by Burton's painting, and one of them stands out for you in particular, and that's a poem titled The Pilgrim at the Well by Francis Brown. Kaylee, can we turn to you to tell us a little bit about Frances Brown? Sure. So Frances Brown was born in 1816 in County Donegal, Ireland. She was known in the press and by readers in the Victorian period as the blind poetess of Ulster. She also came from a working class background, uh, which was also part of her kind of narrative and identity as a Victorian poet. Uh, and she died in poverty in 1879. So despite her successes and popularity as a poet, that didn't translate uh, to her being able to live a comfortable, financially stable life. I'd, I'd add, too, that she was also quite famous for her children's literature, especially her fairy tales. Thank you both for that. So Brown publishes The Pilgrim at the Well in 1841 in the Irish Penny Journal, and it's one of her earliest publications. I'd be really grateful, Kaylee, if you could give us a sense of the poem by reading from it for us. So the poem begins. The fountain is gleaming in the morning light, but there kneels beside it a child of the night. For to her the summers no sunshine bring. 
Oh, what doth she seek at that blessed spring? The home of her youth she has left afar, and the promise of light was her spirit's star. But her perils and pilgrimage are all are past, and that hollowed fount she hath found at last. For they said that a spell in its waters lay to banish the blight of her life away, and the prayer of her faith it grows fervent now while signing the cross upon breast and brow. Thanks so much, Kaylee. So we can hear connections between the painting as it was described to us by Kylie Ann and the reading of the beginning of the poem that you've just shared, Kaylee. I'm wondering, what do we know about Brown's access to Burton's painting? Were copies of the painting circulating widely? Is she responding to the painting or a copy or maybe a review? Kylie Ann? Uh, after Burton exhibited uh, the painting at the Royal Hibernian Academy, the Royal Irish Art Union commissioned an engraving by H.T. Ryle, who was the portrait and historical events engraver to the Queen. And there was a lot of press about this print. It was hyped up quite a lot in, in the journal of, of the art union, but there were notices about it in other papers as well, that this, that this engraving was being made and then the engraving was being exhibited and it was being sold. So it, it was in the press a lot talking about this, this painting and uh, this engraving. Uh, living in Stranelore as part of a working class family, Brown would not have had access to the exhibits. She would not have even been able to afford the engraving because it was very expensive. In fact, so expensive that in 1845, the British Parliament talked about how, how expensive that engraving was, but talked about how well worth it it was in reviving Irish economy because of how well it sold. So Brown's access to it would have been through the printed word, which makes complete sense. She had her family members read to her with whatever they, they whatever reading material they got hold of. So that is very likely where she heard of the painting and had it described to her through the printed word in the periodicals. Thanks so much, Kylie Ann. Kaylee, can I turn to you and return our, our attention to the poem? I'm wondering what interests you about this poem, what you would like to share about it. Well, I think there's two things. One is larger conceptual and one is more in the format of the poem, which actually uh, Kylie Ann noticed when we were talking about it originally. But just hearing Kylie Ann talk about how, how Brown wouldn't have had access to the original engraving and how she would have been writing her poem based on written text describing it, uh, really kind of reinforces my conviction that Brown is a poetess figure in the sense that at the time that Brown was writing, female poets, poetesses, quite frequently wrote ekphrastic poems that were based not necessarily on the images, but on either reproductions of the images or written texts of the images, and they translated that into verse. So Brown is very clearly whether consciously or not, working within or part of this kind of broader literary pattern and tradition. Uh, but one of the things that I think Kai and I both felt found very interesting in The Pilgrim at the Well was the way that it resists traditional ocular-centric forms of poetry. Unlike the other poems published in the Irish Penny Journal, the Pilgrim at the Well, Brown's poem, doesn't have any visual stanza breaks. The breaks in the stanzas are all grammatically signaled, so semicolons, periods, that kind of thing. 
So for the reader to, I guess, understand the poem in terms of its form and in terms of its stanza break, they have to do so by listening to the words and listening to the rhymes and the pauses of the kind of verbal reading of the poem, um, as opposed to relying on sight to understand the poem structure. I wonder, Kylie-Anne, if I can turn to you to ask about attitudes towards blindness, perhaps in the painting, but perhaps in this companion poem. I feel before I can talk about the attitude toward blindness in the poem and in the painting, I need to talk about the attitude toward blindness in general in the Victorian era. In paintings like Burton's piece here and in John Everett Millay's The Blind Girl, for example, there's typically the the portrayal of blindness is it's meant to evoke pity. I think of Martha Stoddard Holmes' work on this, that d visual depictions of blindness in particular, uh, theatrical, like on, on the stage, it is meant to provoke pity. And not just pity in the case of this paint, painting and even Everett Millay's painting, uh, spiritualized pity as well. So it a sense of spiritual access that the blind have somehow that the the seeing don't but but also a pitying of the blind person for not being able to see so the the painting here this is very much the case because this is the presumption is the blind girl is there seeking healing for her sight and that is the presumption that almost all of the ekphrastic poems about this painting make uh, but Kaylee and I have a different reading of this poem by Francis Brown. Uh, it has been read as having that attitude likewise, but we don't see it quite that way. The, the form of the poem, as Kaylee pointed out, it's resisting sightedness as being privileged, right? It's saying, no, listen, listen to the sounds, the grammar, the, the rhyme, etc. And the the meaning of the poem itself, of its stanzas, it's rather than highlighting how piteous it is that this girl is blind and is seeking sight and can't get it, it's, in fact, actually, maybe I'll even just read the, the final stanza because what Brown seems to see as piteous is not that she is blind, it's the wasted time seeking sight. So I'll read that stanza for you here. Oh, is there not many a weary heart that hath seen the greenness of light depart, yet trusted in vain in a powerless spell, like her who knelt by the holy well? As well, there's there's an in injunction fairly early in the poem that that the speaker of the poem says to the to the woman, kneel not at the well. So whereas uh, the uh, other poems, especially poems written by Protestants, they they include sort of like a, a sense of oh, isn't she foolish and superstitious, and 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 that's you know her faith as a Roman Catholic is what's leading her astray, kind of thing. So that line has kind of been interpreted that way or might be interpreted that way here. But we would argue that uh, this injunction to not pray, kneel at the well, is not a Protestant, don't don't be Catholic, Roman Catholicly superstitious, but rather is don't necessarily be seeking healing for something that doesn't really require it. Haley, I'm wondering if you wanted to comment uh, more on those attitudes towards faith or superstition or the search for miraculous cure, perhaps as it relates to Christian or pre-Christian values. Well, I think first in listening to 
Kai talk about blindness in the 19th century, I would just note that in our work on Brown, we came across some really interesting kind of poetic and review responses to Brown that really show the way that 19th century writers and thinkers perceived blindness as giving this mystical, inhuman access to divine inspiration. Um, And I'll just quote, this was one of our favorite lines from our research and looking into this. So Alicia Jane Sparrow, herself a poet, wrote in response to Brown's first poetry volume, kind of describing her work. Uh, Sparrow also wrote a poem in response to Brown. Um, And in that poem, uh, she writes about how Brown exists in the dungeon of mental darkness. And Brown's existence in this dungeon makes her poetry a wonder poetry that comes, quote, from mind and mortal mind, from the essence which soars up to heaven and sees, but not with human eyes, unquote. Right. So I just really wanted to emphasize the way that this, what Kai was talking about in terms of the reception and understandings of blindness was also very clearly applied to Brown herself, which is what leads to a lot of the readings of Brown's poems as being centered on blindness. When it comes to the religious or Christian context of this poem, Kai and I thought a lot about the fact that when Brown is writing the poem, she doesn't actually reference blindness specifically. She speaks about, in the second line, um, there kneels beside it a child of night. And the speaker of the poem says, O stranger of darkness, kneel not there but it's never clearly linked to blindness itself, right? It seems more of like a, a, a darkness of, of faith, a misunderstanding. And so I think that we do see this attempt that Brown is making in this poem to kind of work through these complex cultural and theological tensions that were existing and part of debates about religion in the 19th century, especially for someone like Brown, the tensions in Ireland between Protestantism and Catholicism being so present in that space. Actually, the call for poetry from George Petrie, who ran the magazine, uh, the Irish Penny Journal, that this was published in, he was Anglican and she was Presbyterian, Ulster Presbyterian, and he had many, many uh, Roman Catholic friends And he was interested in sort of reviving Irish nationalism. And he made it very clear in the call for poetry that he would not accept anything that was uh, either anti-Catholic or anti-Protestant. It had to be religiously neutral. And and I think that she clearly succeeded at that in this poem. But And yet she still is grappling with these issues of faith and doubt. And I feel like she's also doing so in a very Presbyterian way. I think that's something that's particularly interesting to me is the different denominational responses to, to this painting as well. We found one just today, actually, that was published in the Protestant Advocate or Irish Missionary Magazine. And its its interpretation of this painting is that it's it's a travesty of showing how how all of Ireland is in darkness. And that's how the poem interprets it as well, like takes that metaphor of blindness and and applies it to all of Roman Catholicism and describes Ireland as being in darkness and and therefore requiring the light of an evangelical Jesus. So yeah, I find it very fascinating how 
how people responding to this painting are using blindness to work out their theological questions or opinions. And that's another thing that Brown seems to resist, especially in that she never names it as blindness. Uh, she just keeps it re referring to it as darkness and as hope clinging. And so it's talking about faith, but also not just about faith, but about sort of uh, hope that can't ever be fulfilled. And I think that's really fascinating. <laughs> It's it's fascinating even at the level of the title of the poem. You know, so many poems in this period will begin the blind boy, the blind girl, right, right in the title. And in this case, it becomes the pilgrim at the well, which is very interesting. The one thing that I would add to this is just the broader framework that initially began um, Kylie Ann and my project was thinking about really troubling the term of the poetess as a category of poet that was assigned to Victorian female poets somewhat indiscriminately. Um, and we were interested in thinking about um, how disabled female poets might fit into or trouble our understanding of the poetess as this effective, popular poet figure uh, in the 19th century. And I think one of the things that we kind of discovered is that the poetess position or the poetess identity seems very open to integrating the disabled body and the disabled narratives around disability um, in ways that just kind of became very interesting to us to work through. Thank you both for sharing with us this painting, the poem it inspired, and some fascinating information about its creator, Francis Brown. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. As I get ready to end this episode with some words of thanks, I'm struck by how generously and effectively the guests in this episode have provided us with audio descriptions of objects from the realm of visual culture, such as the painting by Frederick William Burton that inspired Brown. Our guests have me thinking about the power of audio description for both blind and non-blind people. Even when we have access to artworks or crafted objects or to images of them, and even if we have high levels of both visual acuity and visual literacy, hearing or reading another person's description of an object gives us access to different perspectives and different ideas. As the example of Francis Brown's ekphrastic poetry reminds us, we can gain as much from listening to descriptions and discussion of works of visual culture as we gain from looking at them. Thank you to all our podcast's guests, past and present, for their detailed and evocative audio descriptions, and thank you also to my co-creators, Anne Hung, Jesse Cron, Natalie Lovetri, and Lucy Von Schilling, for all they do to make our listening experience an enriching one. And on the topic of accessibility, I'm pleased to remind you that full transcripts of all our episodes are available at craftingcommunities.net. Be sure to check out the curated content we share for each episode on our podcast page, which you'll find under the Learn tab. That's also your route to our digital exhibition, Victorian Things. And please recommend our podcast to a friend. You can stay in touch by following us on Twitter at CraftyVictorian. 
Victorian samplings was recorded and produced on the territory of the Lekwungen and Sanchothan-speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project, which is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrea Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you for listening. <laughs>